Good morning. It's good to see you all here today. I know we probably have some who are out uh, with family uh, due to the Thanksgiving holiday. We have some who are here uh, visiting with us that are visiting their own family. And uh, whether you're from near or far, we are glad to have you this, here this morning. And, and we thank you for joining us on this Sunday. I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving holiday. I hope you had the chance to be with family and friends and, and enjoy some time uh, thinking about uh, your blessings, thinking about the ways that God has uh, looked over you over this past year and and looking forward to uh, more blessings in the days and weeks and months to come. Today's sermon is about resurrection, and if you were, have not been with us uh, the last few months, you might be wondering why on earth we're teaching about resurrection at this time of year. Aren't we supposed to be talking about Christmas and Thanksgiving and things like that? Uh, if you've been with us, you know that we are currently working through a series for the last few months uh, called the 16 Key Verses of the Bible. Uh, we're looking at uh, uh, preaching through different moments, different uh, touchstones, different uh, key moments in the Bible, the narrative that the Scripture is telling uh, from Genesis through Revelation. And if you were here last week, you know that last week Jim preached about uh, the cross and about the crucifixion of Jesus. So naturally, the next step in our series then is to talk about the resurrection. Now, as a story, the resurrection is a very simple story. We all know if we've been spent any time around a church that uh, Jesus was crucified, and on the third day, uh, the women went to the tomb, and when they arrived at the tomb, the stone had been rolled away, and the tomb was empty, and Jesus had risen again. It's a very simple story, but the implications of that story are profound. The implications of that story are very crucial to our faith, to the things that we believe as Jesus' followers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and following, Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, also as to one abnormally born. So Paul tells the Corinthian church, he said, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. And the gospel he preached is very simple. Jesus, was, Jesus died, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised, and he appeared to many people. But what becomes clear in that message is that the gospel is not the gospel if we just have the cross. The cross by itself means nothing. Jesus' death means nothing without the resurrection. If Jesus had not been raised, then his fact that he died on the cross would mean nothing to us. In fact, Paul's going to say that a few verses later in verse 12. He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So the resurrection is simply part two of last week's sermon. Without the resurrection, we have no gospel. We have no good news. The good news is not the death. 
The good news is the resurrection. So how did Jesus' followers handle this good news? What did they do in the moments after the resurrection? There's an interesting story about the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. I want to take a look at that for a couple minutes. If you will, turn to Luke 24. I think this is a fascinating story of Jesus declaring himself to be alive to some of his followers. So beginning in verse 13, Luke 24, verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So let's pause there for just a moment. So these two men, two disciples, walking down the road to this town called Emmaus. We're told Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, a few years ago, I uh, did several half marathons, several marathons, and, and in doing those marathons, I trained to walk those events. I, I'm not really fond of running, but I do enjoy the, the long-distance events, so I trained as a walker. And most events will require you to keep up about a 16-minute pace to keep from getting swept off the course. So if you think that a normal person can walk a mile in 15 or 16 minutes, imagine it would probably take about an hour and a half to two hours for these guys to make the journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're walking along, and while they're walking along, Jesus comes up to them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they're shocked. How can Jesus not know? How can this strange person not know what's been going on in Jerusalem? Everybody knows what's happened in Jerusalem. So they said, well, these last few days, these things have occurred. And there in the last verse we read, they say one of the sad, what I think one of the saddest statements in Scripture. They say, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. See, Jesus, they say, was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed. He was doing tremendous things. He was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. He was turning loaves of bread into feasts for thousands. He was teaching incredible things. And these guys had gotten their hopes up. This just finally might be the Messiah. Maybe God's finally going to do all the things that he's been promising to do through Jesus. But then things took a turn. Jesus was handed over, and he was crucified. And now their hopes have been crushed. We had hoped. Have you ever hoped for something really, really bad? I remember the senior year, uh, my senior year of high school, there was a new car I wanted. See, my first car, 
I had inherited or been given from my great-grandmother when she went on Meals on Wheels. In order for her to qualify for Meals on Wheels, they had to, she couldn't have transportation. And so uh, my grandparents took her car and they gave it to me. It was a 1972 Buick Century. It was older than I was at the time. It was long and it was yellow. And me and my friends all called it the banana boat. It was a great car. It got me to and from school. But there was no way it was going to get me to college. I think it got eight miles to the gallon. And if you've ever been to New Mexico, you know there are places where on eight miles a gallon, you're going to be stranded in the middle of nowhere. And so there was in the parking lot of the grocery store parked this beautiful green Ford Mustang. And I wanted my parents to buy that car for me to take to college. I left hints. I I made it known that, that was the car I wanted. I was really hoping they would buy that car. Well, that summer, uh, we went on a youth retreat, a youth trip to Dallas, Texas for a few days. And I had convinced myself that as a surprise, my parents were going to buy that car while I was in Texas. And so as we came driving in from Dallas to the church building, we happened to go right by that little grocery store. And there in that parking lot sat that green Mustang. My hopes were crushed. That's trivial. It's just a car. But I had built up in my mind that that was what I needed to be happy. That's what I needed to be ready to go to college and be cool and, and do all the things that I needed to, to do in college. And my parents had crushed my dreams. Well, that's what the apostles felt. That's what these guys felt on the road to Emmaus. They had built up their dreams. They had imagined that Jesus was going to do tremendous things. And then he died. How can the Messiah die? How can this person we've put all of our hope in be the one to die? That's why I think it's truly one of the saddest verses in the Bible, to hear the loss, the deflation, the dejectedness in their voice. And they say, and what, what is more, beginning in verse 21 again, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now, that, that's the interesting, one of the interesting things about the way the resurrection took place. See, when Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the key aspects of the resurrection is all the different people that saw Jesus alive. Yet that first day, very few people saw Jesus alive. And so as they're seeing that the tomb is empty, as they're experiencing the resurrection in the first few moments, it's a confusing time for them. They don't understand what's going on. And so in verse 25, he said to them, How foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all of the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And remember what I said a minute ago about how long it would take them to get to Emmaus from Jerusalem? Roughly an hour and a half, maybe two hours. I don't know when Jesus appeared beside them. But imagine what it must be like to walk with Jesus for an hour to an hour and a half 
and have him explaining all of scripture to you? Imagine what it must be like for Jesus to open your eyes to the deep meaning of scripture. It says he started with Moses and he worked through his prophets and pointed to all the things about the Christ. I imagine what Jesus told them that day looked a lot like the sermon series we've been going through for the last three months. He probably started with Adam and Eve in that beautiful garden that God created. And then he told how Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and how God blessed or how God cursed them. But in the midst of that curse, God promised a future and said, your offspring will strike the heel of the serpent. And then he probably talked about Abraham and the patriarchs, how God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you. And through that blessing that you're going to receive, all nations will be blessed. And from you will come many people. He probably talked about Isaac and how Abraham offered him on an altar, and yet God saved him. He probably talked about uh, his sons, about Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. He probably talked about the Exodus, talked about the conquest of the Promised Land. But he also probably talked about how they continued to follow idols and follow foreign gods and make alliances with foreign leaders. And he walked them through the kings, through David and Solomon, and reminded them that God said to David, your heir will sit on the throne forever. And he walked them through the prophets as the prophets condemned Israel, but also promised them Many blessings. And I like to think that based on what these two disciples said to him about losing hope, I can imagine that Jesus ended his discussion where we were just a few weeks ago when Paul preached from the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel is taken out to the valley of dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And if we recall so vividly the way Paul taught us that lesson, those, those bones began to rattle and they began to come together. And they, they formed bodies and they stood up. And then God breathed life into them. And in verse 11 of that chapter, in Ezekiel 37, God says to Ezekiel that these bones represent all of Israel. These bones represent his people. It says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. That's why I like to think that maybe Jesus ended his time with these two disciples talking about Ezekiel. Because the two disciples he's walking with had lost their hope. Jesus had died. They feel no more hope. Much the same way the Israelites in captivity felt. They had lost their hope. They've been carried away from their homeland. They no longer get to worship in the temple. They're being punished. And they say, our hope is also lost. And that's the point of the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones, to give them hope again. 
to show them that God can restore Israel and that God can bring the dead things back to life. So Jesus walks these two disciples through all of this story. Now, if you think back over the last few months, the different stories, the different verses, the different examples that we've looked at from Scripture, it's really just a series of promises that God has made. To Adam and Eve, he promised to crush the serpent. To Abraham, he promised offspring, he promised land, and he promised blessings to all people. To Judah, through his father, through the blessing, he promised that Judah, the, the scepter, the throne, would never leave Judah's line. To David, he promised that David would always have an heir on the throne. And through Ezekiel, he promised to send his spirit to restore life and to make a new covenant with his people. And that's what the resurrection represents. The fulfillment of all these promises. Through Jesus' resurrection, the serpent has been crushed. Through Jesus' resurrection, all men can now approach God. Through Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is now the king sitting on David's throne. And through Jesus' resurrection, we can now taste the new life that God is able to give through the power of his spirit. And so it says, these two disciples, after Jesus left them, they said, were our hearts not burning while he walked with us on the road? Imagine what it must have been like in the midst of their hopelessness to have Jesus explaining how everything fits together. You see, this entire story that we've been looking at comes to its focal point in last week and this week in the cross and the resurrection. This is the moment that all of history has been pointing to, and this is the moment that history is going to flow from. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who are going to be resurrected. And so we have confidence, we have hope, that because Jesus was resurrected, we too will be resurrected. But the early church faced a challenge. Their loved ones continued to die. They continued to be persecuted. They continued to have difficulties. They continued to face struggles of many kind. Look over at Hebrews chapter 2 with me for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, talking about who Jesus is. The Hebrew writer says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, this, these Hebrews, they were struggling. In Hebrews chapter 10, we find out that 
They have been arrested. They have been exposed to public insult. They've been persecuted. They've had their property taken away. They're suffering many things simply because they confess that Jesus is their Lord. And so they're asking what would be a very natural question. How can you tell me that everything is under Jesus' feet when I look around and I see so much pain and suffering in this world? I think it's a question that our world asks today. How can you tell us that God is in control? How can you tell us that everything is under Jesus' feet when we look around and we see wars? We see shootings in schools and libraries and movie theaters. We see people struggling and fighting with each other. And it makes us want to ask the question, how can we declare that God is in control? How can we declare that all things have been put under Jesus' feet? And the Hebrew writer's answer is simple. Look at Jesus. Look at the man who endured the cross and who was raised again and sits at God's right hand. That's the answer. Chapter 11 of Hebrews. We, we love this chapter because it gives us a great biblical definition of faith. In 11 verse 1 it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And if you go on to read the rest of chapter 11, you see some stories of, of great individuals from the Bible who did great things. We see Abraham. We see Jacob and Joseph. We see Moses. And these are all heroes, giants of the faith that we like to look to. But if you keep reading you see some things that are not so easy to read about. We read about people who were tortured for their faith. We read about people who were killed for their faith, who lost their lives, who lost their families. And at the end of that chapter, chapter 11, verse 39, the Hebrew writer says, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, chapter 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Hebrew writer doesn't use the word resurrection, but it's implied in what he says. Jesus endured the shame of the cross, and he now sits at the right hand of God. In order for him to sit at the right hand of God right now, he has to have been raised. The death that he suffered did not hold him. The grave could not contain him. And because Jesus was raised, and because the grave could not hold him, we are encouraged by the Hebrew writer to fix our eyes on him, not on the pain and the struggle and the difficulty we see around us, but fix our eyes on Jesus. So I actually think it's appropriate as we approach this Christmas holiday season to talk about the resurrection. 
You see, Christmas time is supposed to be about joy and love and peace. And, and, and the picture we get from the Norman Rockwell painting is families coming together, blissfully enjoying the holiday. But we also know that depression tends to increase at the holidays. That as we become more aware of what we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to behave, what we're supposed to be thinking, we also become more aware of the things that we might not have. Maybe we don't have a close family. Maybe we don't have the financial resources we wished we had. Maybe we don't have the things that we had been hoping for. And so we tend to get a little bit depressed, a little bit down about those things. In the same way that the early Christians looked around them and they saw loved ones dying. And they said, we're supposed to have confidence in Jesus. How can we have confidence in Jesus when we continue to suffer? And the Hebrew writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God. You know, growing up in the, uh, in the Church of Christ, we didn't talk about Christmas a whole lot, at least as a religious holiday. You know, it was a fun time to be with family, to be with friends. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've tried to actually spend more time reading about Christmas and what, what it means as a Christian to think about the birth of Jesus. And the period of time before Christmas is called Advent. Now, Advent, the word simply means something is approaching, something is coming. And the season of Advent looks at the birth of Jesus as a microcosm of the story of the Bible. You know, think about the anticipation when the birth of a baby is announced. The joy you feel, how excited you are that that baby is coming. And then you have that nine-month journey to the birth and delivery of that baby. There's difficulty in that. There's pain in that. There's discomfort in that. But once that baby finally arrives... There is so much joy. There's so much love. And the remarkable thing is, so much of that pain and discomfort is not forgotten, but put behind and set aside because of the joy of that new child. And what the Advent season tries to do is take how Mary must have felt. Once it had been announced to her, the anticipation of her new child and we lay that on top of the anticipation that Israel felt as they expected their Messiah to arrive, as they waited for the birth of their Savior. And we're asked to do the same thing now as Christians. We are eagerly waiting for and watching for the second coming. We're in a time of waiting. We're in a time of anticipation. We're in a time of expectation. We know it's coming. But it's hard to see. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus. The resurrection is about hope. The resurrection is about knowing that God has made promises. He has started fulfilling those promises. And he will keep his promises. And we can hold on to that hope if we will only fix our eyes on Jesus. If there's any way we can assist you today, anything we can pray for you, if we can study with you, if you're prepared to put on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we would love to have the opportunity to do those things today. Please come while we stand and while we sing.